City Limits. Brought to us by the People's Committee for Melbourne every Wednesday at 9am. City Limits is Melbourne's only hour devoted to our urban environment. To transport and planning and housing issues. To privatisations and our utility services. To building and or maintaining a sense of community. 855 on the AM band, if we can hear it through the noise and find it through the smog. City Limits. Okay, City Limits, and um, look, just to prove it is, I'm going to pour a cup of tea. I hope you could hear that. That was, that's besides my bedside um, table, unfortunately, because I'm stuck in hospital today. I, I'll explain what? that in a minute. But um, Karina is um, Karina's doing all this, uh, this wonderful work on technology. Meg Kimber's there asking, am I serious? I'm Kevin Healy. And yeah, I am. I, I'm, I'm actually in Royal Melbourne Toxicology. I've... Um, it's very sad. I um, I probably shouldn't have taken the advice, but when when someone like Donald Trump <laughs> says something, you have to believe him, don't you? And and so I, I maybe How I should have drunk the disinfectant. <laughs> I mean, the worst part is my uh, my skin is totally green. That's the real worry. I, I'm totally green and and poisoned. But I probably shouldn't Kevin, have injected you, it. I should have drunk it. You scared us. And Karina and I, we're, we're on Zoom. We can see each other. We're freaking out. We thought you were really in hospital. Well, lucky you can't see me. I'm totally green. It was, <laughs> it was just, it was just the, the, just the supermarket house brand I drank, but I injected. But, you know, God, it's had an amazing effect. Oh, so it well, must have been think, the, the needle. Cause, yeah, because yeah. Donald wouldn't say something quite ridiculous, would he? No, definitely not. No, no. It's good no, that you did no, that no. Kevin. I think you did the right thing. Yeah, okay, thanks. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Anyway, I haven't got coronavirus, so maybe it worked. There you go. Um, yes. Now, I'm going to ask a little question here and see if you can come up with the answer. Uh-oh. And the question is, can you see where this is going? I gave you a bit of a clue on this already, Meg, so yep. you might get it. But this was um, this was John Roscombe, the head of the, the um, Institute of Public Affairs, a, a wonderfully bright man, and John says, see, just to where the question is, can you see where this is going? Turnbull was wrong to float the idea of higher taxes. Albanese is wrong to dismiss the prospect of lower taxes. Now, can either of you pick up just where that might be leading in John's argument? Uh, it's a little bit tough confusing, one. to be honest, though. Like it's yeah, it's very taxes. confusing. It's wrong to have higher taxes and it's wrong to have lower taxes. Lower tax. Well, GST should, go, of course, needs to be increased, but that's because it's a fair tax. Everyone pays the same, including the very poor. Uh, wow. But he does. Well, he comes up with three solutions to how we can how we can get the economy going again. Cut the taxes that already exist by bringing forward the government's planned personal income tax reduction. Cut red tape. By that they mean green tape, or at least stop its growth by implementing twelve month ban, etc. Make it easier for small business to employ workers, and this is the bit I love, by exempting small business from parts of the Fair Work Act, that is, parts of the Act presumably that cover pay conditions and those minor little things in employment. Right. Well, that ties into uh, one of our guests today who's talking about um, employment conditions and wages in the independent education sector. 
And we can, let's get to that. Who are our guests today, young man? Right. Well, our guests on City Limits today, we've got Han Albee from the Centre for Public Integrity talking about how Parliament has, uh, the Australian par- Parliament has taken an unprecedented step um, of suspending Parliament for, well, the government has taken the step of suspending Parliament for quite a significant number of sitting days, um, all the way up until August or something like that. Um, so we'll talk to Han about that and the other work that the Centre for Public Integrity are doing. And our other guest is Emma, a delegate from the Independent Education Union, talking about um, English teachers in private colleges um, working together to unionise and uh, support each other for better conditions and, and better wages and what has happened because of coronavirus in that sector. Excellent. Should be a yeah. great show today. I hope so. <laughs> yes. I, I, well, look, I just, it, it, given we've got a limited time to have a discussion, I'll go straight to the one I wanted to mostly talk about, okay. which is the Carnival Cruise people. Okay. Uh, and the fact yeah. that we know that the Carnival Cruise ships around the world have played a major role in the spread of coronavirus. But it's interesting to note a few things about the company, apart from the fact that they, they've been accused of letting people, even when they knew it was a problem, letting people still mix without distancing and socialise on ships, etc. Mm-hmm. But a few other facts about them. In 2017, the US Department of Justice fined Carnival's Princess Line a record 40 million US dollars, which is about 60 or so Australian for dumping oil-contaminated waste at sea and falsifying official discharge records to cover it up. Last wow. June, Donald himself, and it's not Donald Trump, it's Donald, the now CEO of the company, Donald himself entered a guilty plea on behalf of Carnival for violating the terms of its settlement after authorities found its ships kept on dumping even after the 2017 ruling. We acknowledge the shortcomings, Donald told a Miami judge. I am here today to formulate a plan to fix them, which sounds like our banks when they hit the courts as well. So they're a pretty reliable company. Now, it goes on to say, though, that they don't pay any tax in the U.S., like any other company. It's true that as a corporation, we don't pay income tax, he says, but he says Americans benefit from the port and harbour fees that Carnival pays in accordance with the demands of the maritime industry. So they pay harbour fees, so why should they pay tax as well? And they do pay tax. They paid $71 million on an income of $20.8 billion in revenue in the in the Panama, where, they, where some of the ships are registered. So... That's about 0.00 something, if you work it out, by the way. Wow. Just thought I'd mention that. That's a huge but, industry, so, isn't it? It is, and mm-hmm. it's uh, and their ships, as we know, played a shocking role in the whole coronavirus thing. Mm-hmm. But it's not, it's interesting to note this point. Carnival was founded in 1972 by Ted Arison, an Israeli-American who wanted to transform the image of the cruise industry from stuffy ultra-luxury to a middle-class splurge with a party atmosphere. Harrison's first ship, and this is an interesting point, also named Mardi Gras, because he had another Mardi Gras later, had only 300 passengers and got stuck 20 minutes after leaving Miami on a sandbar where it remained for 28 hours. In the 80s and 90s, Harrison's son Mickey bought up a string of competitors, took the company public and made his family one of the wealthiest in America. By the turn of the century, Carnival owned 36% of the North American market. Mickey Arison bought the Miami Heat and became friendly with Donald Trump. 
Carnival has sponsored the Celebrity Apprentice and hosted an apprentice-themed um, cruise, oh. which is interesting because that connection to Donald Trump. But this is oh. the amazing bit. Given their role in coronavirus, they've been charged with dumping waste at sea. They don't pay American taxes. Guess what? On April 14, that's just recently, Trump named Arison as one of the business leaders advising him on how to reopen the economy. Wow. So he's put these crooks on the on the advisory board to himself. So it's wonderful, isn't it? What was that the ship model though, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> That's very much like Trump's kind of uh, way of operating, doing business. Avoid responsibility. Completely. And was that the the company that had the ship that disembarked in Sydney under some um, that's princess, yeah. circumstances. Yeah, that's Ruby them. Princess. That's Did one they? of their one of their ships. Yes, and also and the one that lied about it. Yes, and and the, they've had other troubles. The the uh, Costa Concordia, which ran a ran aground off Tuscany, you might recall, that was one of their ships that killed thirty two, right. including a child. And remember, the captain took off. And yes. also, that was in 2012. In 2013, a fire in the engine room of the Carnival Triumph, now better known as the Poop Cruise, left hundreds of guests stranded in the Gulf of Mexico without air conditioning or working toilets for several days. Uh, so they've got a pretty ordinary record of safety all over the place, and they've certainly proved it with this coronavirus situation. But the, the, the outrageous thing is, although it's not outrageous given his record, that Trump puts the bloke on the board to advise him. Yeah. And what do we know about the conditions for staff on those ships? I would think pretty awful. It, it, yeah. in this, uh, I can't pick it up immediately, but in this rather long article about them, it points out they sleep in bunks, you know, with with many, many crew stuck yeah. in fairly small space all on bunks together. And most of the crew, I think, come from countries where it's low pay. Yeah. You notice yeah. that when they, were, when they were flown out, they were all coming from parts of Asia where I assume they picked up not because they're such competent seamen. They probably are, but mainly because they're cheap labour. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That's a... One of the, um, I guess, issues of um, sh companies like this, which don't technically exist anywhere and therefore aren't sort of like answerable to specific laws in particular countries but and, and also paying taxes in particular countries, right? That's right, yes. So they... And that, well, that most of those companies, we know they all have... They're all, they're all in tax havens and... Uh, right. And... Yet, even though they pay no American taxes, although they do pay the harbour fees. You've got to remember that. They pay the harbour <laughs> fees. They pick them up. Oh, so, that's it. So I just thought, it, but I thought that was uh, worth mentioning. And particularly, I, I read on it and suddenly when it pointed out that, that Trump had appointed him to the board, I thought, my God, you know, this wow. is just ridiculous. Yeah. We're shaking our heads here, Kevin. Yeah, yes. But I think at the moment we're, facing danger. A couple of weeks ago, I thought I mentioned last week, I can't recall, that that our Prime Minister said that tax and industrial relations reform, deregulation and fast-tracked infrastructure are back in the mix and he wants an aggressive pro-business investment strategy. And we're seeing that article by John Roskam was going in the same direction. We're getting it every day now from people like Bolt, but we're getting it from the business community generally that 
that we need to get business back as fast as possible, but with the addition of lower taxes for them, much tighter industrial relations. They keep using flexibility, which means Mm. you screw workers. They want fast-tracked infrastructures, which means there'll be no real controls over it. So the, the boardrooms become the planning authority for public infrastructure at public expense. Uh, and deregulation, which for them means getting rid of environmental controls over developments and over over resource industries. So it's a pretty dangerous period. It's a period when we really need the union movement and the workers around the country to really stand up and say, we're not going to cop this. Because in fact, on that that, uh, John Roscombe page, this was in Friday, he has an article every couple of weeks in the Friday Fin Review, there was an editorial saying it's not right wing to reform now. It's just very rational, and it goes through the usual mm. economic rational. Speaking of rational, economic rationalist rubbish, and praises the Hawke-Keating reforms, which of course played a key role in destroying the trade union movement in this country, or certainly undermining it. Mm. And they conclude by saying some argue that only a Labor government can achieve the Hawke-Keating era scale of policy reforms that are now required because the ACTU would never cooperate with a centre-right government. How bad is that? Well, they cooperated with a very right-wing one with Hawke-Keating, but anyway, how bad is that? Labor and the ACTU risk being exposed for politicising a mainstream economic agenda embraced by the last successful Labor government for their own self-serving purposes when the rest of Team Australia is trying to deal with a burning platform. So Mm. what a a vicious argument that the ACTU shouldn't oppose anything because it's because it's following the Hawke-Keating role which set up economic rationalism as we know it and which has helped bring us to where we are today. It really does actually tie in with both of our guests today because on the one hand, the government operating without scrutiny at this moment is concerning and the scrutiny comes from the opposition and the crossbench, you know, interrogating the decisions that they're making. So if Parliament isn't sitting, there's no interrogation, there's no scrutiny. And on the other hand, these multi-billion dollar industries uh, in this moment are suddenly, you know, they can't afford to uh, withstand this uh, shock of the economic impacts of coronavirus, but the they're expecting their workers to take the burden by taking pay cuts or, like, losing shifts and things like that. So, try to leave yeah. without pay or, or, you know, and I think yeah. it's outrageous. They've been asked to draw on their own superannuation, which is going to affect them down yeah. the track. Exactly. And that could, if they do it now, every time there's a crisis, they might say, well, take some more super out. Exactly. And if 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 uh, individuals are expected to prepare for a completely, um, you know, quite unlikely event such as this, like a whole economy is like basically closing down, then surely the companies could have prepared for that and could be well enough prepared not to have to put that burden back onto their staff. Yeah, so given they make all these billions and every year they report all these record profits, it's amazing that within about two days of something like this happening, they're suddenly calling out for all sorts of help because they've got nothing, no money and no reserves. It's, uh, yeah. it's interesting, isn't it? It is interesting. Well, where, where, do they, where are all those problems? They go into the pockets of shareholders, et cetera, but, but nonetheless, mm-hmm. where are all those profits over all those years and why haven't they got enough to keep mm-hmm. going through what can be a difficult period? Yeah, because if they expect their staff to be able to, then surely it's reasonable to expect that as a company they should be able to. 
and and how much of those kind of government um, bailouts basically are actually being forwarded on to the staff and how much is just keeping those companies afloat in other ways? Well, I think uh, I think well, these are all rhetorical questions, but I think we also know the answer to them, don't we? <laughs> we do. But they're yeah. they're ripping us off. Just just before we go to a first guest, one small one other thing I thought just worth mentioning. In the last couple of weeks, we've talked about the rental situation, and mm-hmm. we've talked to Shane McGrath a number of times. Who was very active in the reforms that have come in about How rental yeah. giving giving some power to tenants. But unfortunately, with this virus, there was a story appeared last week that several of Victoria's rental law reforms will be delayed from coming into effect for six months amid the coronavirus crisis. All 130 amendments to the Residential Tenancies Act, which included introducing minimum standards for properties, allowing renters to make minor modifications to their homes and banning no, no reason evictions, were due to come into force by July. But the state government has now stated it will postpone the start date of a number of the reforms to January the 1st. So that's a bit of a setback in terms of tenants. Interesting. Well, did they Was cite that... any concrete reasons for that, Kevin, apart from, you know, this vague kind of, oh, the virus? I think the concrete reasons would be the lobby coming from the landlords and the real estate. The Real Estate Institute of Victoria had called for a six-month moratorium, so they got it. Yeah. Uh, and just just because they can keep ripping off tenants, one assumes. But we have to get Shane on. We'll get him on the next housing day anyway just to discuss that because it's a, it is a setback from where it was. Yeah, we'll do that for, uh, soon. You're listening to City Limits on 3CR. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio, Melbourne's voice of dissent. 3CR Community Radio, 855 on the AM dial, streaming live at 3cr.org.au or on 3CR Digital in Melbourne. Our next guest is Han Orby from the Centre for Public Integrity. Thanks for joining us, Han. No worries. Good to be here. Um, So can we start maybe just with a a basic introduction about what the Centre for Public Integrity does and then we'll talk about um, what's happening with Parliament at the moment being on, on break for so long. Yeah, sure. So the Centre for Public Integrity is an independent think tank dedicated to preventing corruption, eliminating the undue influence of money in politics and protecting our integrity institution. Um, So on our board, we have uh, retired corruption fighters such as Tony Fitzgerald and David Ipp. And really the centre is a place where experts, academic experts, retired judges, um, uh, barristers, legal, legal minds that have expertise and, and experience in, in the area of corruption and integrity reform can work together and collaborate to come up with solutions to some of these big problems. Mm. And one of the recent pieces of research that you did was looking at governments all around the world and their responses to coronavirus. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, sure. So uh, recently we've been working on accountability of the government's response to coronavirus. And often in times of crises, our normal processes of policymaking and governance aren't used. And so, for example, in Australia, with the coronavirus response, uh, Parliament's been adjourned until August and there's been a lot of decision-making power um, referred to 
individual ministers, for example, there's a $40 billion fund that's now at the discretion of the finance minister, Matthias Cormann, and he can basically allocate that money with very little accountability through delegated legislation. So there's, there's a range of ways in which the coronavirus response in Australia hasn't followed our normal democratic system um, and therefore there's a greater risk of corruption and, and poor decision making. So the paper that you mentioned uh, we put together looking at whether that's a, a uniquely Australian response or whether countries all around the world are doing the same thing and what we found is that in other democracies where they're facing coronavirus they've actually in a lot of cases increased accountability mm-hmm. and parliaments have continued to sit um, with some of them sitting partially online some of them continuing to meet in person and I guess across the board there was what we found in the research was that there's a sort of common understanding in other democracies that when you're dealing with large sums of public money and large questions affecting the health of millions or billions of people, that accountability and integrity and, and proper democratic governing is, is as important as ever, if not more important. There were some countries that even took extra additional like steps to um, make sure that there was accountability, right? Yeah, that's right. So in New Zealand, they've set up a a bipartisan committee whose job is to um, sort of scrutinise any corona-related legislation. Uh, And Australia's actually taken on that model now, which is good. So we've now set up, just a couple of weeks ago, set up a um, Senate Select Committee to provide some of that scrutiny. Um, Mm -hmm. Other countries have increased the ability for members to question ministers and some of those uh, countries have organised to do that online, for example, in, in Wales and Scotland. And beginning now in, in the UK Parliament, they've set up online question time so that members who aren't in the chambers can put direct questions to ministers in regards to the government's response to coronavirus. So, um, yeah, we, I guess we'd like to see, first and foremost, we'd like Parliament to resume and we'd like to see some of those um, measures taken up, including potentially moving, you know, partially online for those that can't travel to Canberra. And, just- and the only the only bipartisan thing I can see here is that the so the um, the opposition seems to be supporting the government down the line, pretty much in in all these activities or non activities. Yeah. So the opposition in Australia, I guess, has tried to. You know, you know, they say they're trying to put party lines aside in terms of crisis and get the responses happening quickly, which I think everyone supports. You know, we need those, uh, we need those support packages delivered quickly. We need um, legislation to pass through to enable the crisis response to occur. But what we're saying is that Parliament's shown that it can and will pass through legislation that's urgent and in a timely manner. But, you know, Labor has been able to get um, some amendments to those bills and and that was just in, in a couple of times when Parliament did sit to pass those bits of legislation. But importantly, Parliament sitting during that time, it, they, they sat twice, once on the 23rd of March and once on the 8th of April, I think it was. So just two single days. But even in that time, there was a lot more media 
um, awareness and transparency around what the government was doing because they had to table legislation. So there's just a lot more public scrutiny. You know, the crossbench are able to ask questions and gain information and questions on notice, um, committee hearings. You know, there's a whole range of, like, public scrutiny measures that are in place when Parliament's sitting. And, and, and Labor has said, you know, like, obviously they, they are getting legislation through, but Labor has said that they really do want Parliament to sit. So that's one thing where there's not bipartisan There seems to be some rule by legislation or by regulation. Notice last week the, the Industrial Relations Minister regulated that and reduced the time when employers want to change wages and conditions and for workers to look at it and vote on it from seven days to 24 hours, which the unions are screaming about and saying it's an attack on workers' wages and conditions, but that was just done by regulation with nothing going through Parliament. Yeah, so that's a good example. So the Job Seeker Bill that went through Parliament um, on the, I think it was in early April, basically was it was a bit of a shell of legislation and they rushed it through and in that bill, um, power was given to the Industrial Relations Minister to basically shape the whole program. And that's a, a great example where we believe that those mechanisms and the shape of that program should have gone through Parliament so that it could be debated and amended in, in proper public view. Because at the moment, um, yeah, the Industrial Relations Minister has complete control to set the rules and kind of really shape that, that program um, without any accountability, basically. A lot of those rules are set by delegated legislation, which is basically, like you said, the regulations that don't need to go through Parliament. And because Parliament's not sitting at the moment, the normal scrutiny measures of delegated legislation or, or you know, ministerial rules don't work either. So there's a, there is a Senate committee whose job is to scrutinise delegated legislation in normal times. But because those rules, such as the job seeker, rules and the allocation of funding from that finance fund that I mentioned earlier, because Parliament's not sitting and those large programs are being basically set by delegated legislation, the, the Senate committee can't investigate them because they can only investigate dele delegated legislation when Parliament's sitting. Mm. So that's one thing that we're concerned about. And just on the numbers of it, how many sitting days is this government... Uh, not going to be there for, as opposed to like other governments in in democracy. Yeah. So, in other places, um, parliaments have been adjourned for less than ten days. Like I think in Canada, it was maybe nine days, and other places was less than that. Like they might have just not had parliament for one or two days in those initial weeks when mm -hmm. the crisis was really at peak. Mm. Um, but in Australia, we've adjourned until August. So there's like large sections of, of the parliamentary sitting year, including the budget, um, mm -hmm. which is being delayed. So the budget is normally in May and there's budget estimates, which are another important accountability uh, mechanism. And all of that's been delayed. So the budget is now looking like it's going to be in October. But in the meantime, um, there's very little ability for opposition or crossbench members of parliament to, to really... And, and the media and any kind mm. of public participants, including stakeholders, um, to really have enough information to know what's going on. So Australia's unique in that sense of delaying for months and months when, you know, when really it, there's 
no reason to do so. Um, mm. People have spoken about constitutional problems with Australia moving part of our parliamentary sittings online and we'll have a research paper coming out this week um, kind of debunking some of those myths around the constitutional problems and, and pointing out examples from the UK mm. um, and Europe where parliaments are sitting at least partially online. And so considering uh, there's been issues in the past, obviously, with the sports rot uh, in terms of where funding was allocated to by this, by the federal government, is there any, um, do people, are people seeing this as a very cynical move on the government's part? Yeah, well, so, some of my board members have spoken about that. And I guess it goes back to public trust and, the sports rorts program started off with $100 million of public money being misspent for the election gains in marginal seats of the, mm. of the government. But as that scandal unfolded and investigative journalists um, uncovered more, it, it seemed that it was more like a billion dollars of public grant money that was misspent in that period. So then the public's left not trusting individual ministers to make those decisions. Mm. And now we're in the case where it's not just $100 million or one or even $1 billion of public money. We're look, talking about over $100 billion of public money that's in discretionary funds or in um, programs that are, yeah, that, that are being regulated entirely by individual ministers. So I think it goes back to public trust. Obviously, we don't know whether public money is being misspent at the moment. Obviously, we hope it's not and we hope that those ministers are doing the right thing. But the problem is, I guess, that there's less um, scrutiny and also there's less, even if they're, they're not meaning to act corruptly or, or if they might not be intending to act unethically, but in terms of just having less uh, structures in place to make sure that there are no you know, human error mistakes and the more power is concentrated in, in individual hands, the, the more likely it is that, um, that mistakes are made and, that, and the easier it is for uh, yet misspending of public money as we saw in the sports sorts of affair. Mm. And on that point, you've long advocated a federal anti-corruption body with real teeth, but the one that the government is proposing uh, apparently, a thing like the sports rorts or, say, Angus Taylor sending a letter with totally false information trying to expose the Lord Mayor of Sydney's climate change credentials, that they, those matters could not be looked at by the body they're, they're putting up, which seems to me to defeat the purpose. Uh, is that the case? Yeah, that's right. And the government's model for an integrity commission basically can only investigate cases where there's been a crime committed and where there's some evidence of that crime being committed. And there's no reason why that should be the case because you set up and an integrity commission for the purpose of investigating and exposing corruption. So if they need to have evidence before they even get started, from our point of view, it kind of defeats the purpose. And it, and it does rule out a lot of those cases where you might just have an anonymous tip-off of some, you know, suspicion of uh, misconduct or, or corrupt behaviour and an integrity commission 
with broad jurisdiction is able to follow that and, and find out what's really gone on. But under Christian Porter's um, integrity commission model, they need that evidence, they need at least some evidence straight away and it needs to be at the level of a crime. So, yet the sports sports wouldn't be covered, um, nor would a lot of the kind of examples of ministerial um, conduct that have caused some scandal in the media in recent times. Mm. I was going to say, related to that, it's a matter of perception, but also the fact that the Prime Minister referred it to the head of his department, whom he just appointed, but who was a former Liberal Party, a parachicken senior advisor. Uh, and there was a lot uh, of scepticism when he... Yeah, go on, yeah. Yeah, that report wasn't released to the public. So it was an internal investigation from someone who had previously worked at the Liberal Party. And after that investigation, the report wasn't made public and the findings um, were basically that nothing wrong had happened. But when you look at the report from the Independent National Audit Office, which I think has a lot more uh, credibility and independence on this matter, if you look at their report, it says that that there were uh, large amounts of money being misspent for electoral gain and and also that there were potential cases where the ministerial code of conduct was broken. So, you know, it's a, it's, it goes to show the importance of independent institutions making sure that those accountability mechanisms are in place but that they're in, independent from government and outside of the influence of, of Cabinet and um, senior ministers. And, you know, that's why one of our projects is working around making sure that officers like the audit office um, get proper funding, maintain independence, have the powers and skills and staff that they need to do their job because it's often too easy for governments to make those officers partisan and, and for outcomes like we've seen with the report from the head of PMC that wasn't independent at all. So. Mm. You're listening to City Limits. We're joined by Han Orby from the Centre for Public Integrity and we'll, we will have to wrap up in a minute, Han, but you, the centre did a, an online petition about government, um, the adjourning of government, and ha- there was a lot of signatures on there, and if people haven't signed, they can go and sign it, can they, still, or, or not? Yeah, the, the petition's still active. We're basically just calling for Parliament to resume as soon as possible. Um, so people can go onto our Twitter page and they'll see the petition there. So you can just look up this. CPI underscore AUS, CPI Oz, um, on Twitter, and you'll find it there. And how many signatures are there so far? We're getting towards 20,000, so if people can sign, it would be a big help. Awesome. All right, I think we'll leave it there. Great, thanks so much. Thanks, Han. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio, 855 AM. On Monday the 23rd of March, 3CR closed its doors to all presenters so that we could do our bit to help stop the spread of COVID-19. We understand that it's important for people to be able to stay at home at this time in order to reduce the number of people affected and thereby reduce the stress on our health system. Since the 3CR shutdown, Programmers and volunteers have been working remotely to create new content and produce their show from home. 
will continue to bring you dynamic, up-to-date community radio during the COVID-19 crisis, so keep listening. Have you heard it on the news About this fascist growth thing Evil men with racist views Spreading all across the land They're pulling on the boots in Brazil and wiping off the eggshells in Moorabbin. Fascism's on the march and we say, yeah, nah. Yena Passaran is a new weekly program on 3CR dedicated to tracking this rise in Australia, Aotearoa and all around our increasingly warm little globe. Every Thursday at 4.30pm, we'll be talking to writers and fighters about some angry blighters. We're back on City Limits and we're joined by Emma, who's a delegate with the Independent Education Union. Um, Thanks for joining us, Emma. Yeah, no worries. Thanks for having me. So can you first of all start by telling us about the industry that you work in? What is ELICOS? Yep. So uh, ELICOS stands for uh, English uh, Language Intensive Courses for Overseas Students. It's a bit of a mouthful, but Mm -hmm. uh, basically it's the industry, uh, the privatised industry that uh, teaches English uh, to international students who then go on to uh, TAFE or university courses um, or things like that. Um, yeah, it's um, it's quite a, a big industry in the sense that it makes $2 billion a year for the bosses um, of that industry. Um, and however, like a lot of that wealth, um, well, pretty much none of that wealth goes to um, the, the people who actually make it run. So, um, yeah, it's a very casualised industry um, and the vast majority of teachers are on the award, so the bare minimum. Mm. Yeah. And because of a lot of a, a lot of industries where there's high levels of casualisation, um, it often means that people aren't able, like individual workers aren't necessarily able to advocate for themselves and, and the right conditions and, and pay. So what's been happening yeah. in that sector in terms of that? Yeah, I mean, I, I guess, yeah, it, it, it can be difficult because people don't, you know, obviously don't have um, job security. They don't feel like as individuals they can start up for themselves. But actually in the last couple of years, we've, we've started to turn that around. So uh, a really sort of big um, example of that is, is at Kaplan, which is one of the bigger um, colleges. Um, and at Melbourne, they were able to um, basically fully unionise, so 100% of them unionised. Um, and were able to negotiate um, an, an MBA, um, an enterprise agreement that was above award. Um, and that was a really great sort of example to have. And then we could sort of take that example to um, all the other colleges, you know, mine and a whole bunch of others sort of thing to say, well, hey, they did it. Um, uh, so there's no reason we can't either. Amazing. Um, yeah. That's a big success. Yeah, it really is. Yeah, yeah. Um, and yeah, I think just the fact that we sort of proved, or the Kaplan, they proved that it was possible, I think. Um, you know, that was a really big thing because I think one thing about this industry is that I think people have very low expectations. You mm-hmm. know, it's like extremely um, casualised. People just don't really expect anything else. They say, oh, well, you know, I'll just do this for a few years, get out of it or whatever. Um, or, yeah, like, and that's what they expect. So, like, just having an example that actually shows that things can be different, um, I think just having, yeah, having that was really important for us. Um, and it, yeah, it really led to people being, you know, sort of more inspired to join the union um, for themselves as well. Yeah. Is everyone casual, or are there people with tenure and actually employed full time? Yeah. Um, so there, there are some people with tenure. So, like, 
for example, Kaplan was a bit of a nightlier in the sense that um, I understand that most of them actually were either full-time or, or part-time, which probably helped in terms mm. of unionising. Mm. Um, but in most of the colleges, um, everyone's casual. So at my schools, for example, there's one who is full-time and that's because he's on a, a, a visa arrangement sort of thing. Everyone else, including teachers, have been there for about nine, ten years, so long enough to take long service leave, um, they're still casual. And that's pretty much the norm for the industry. Yeah, so it's pretty, pretty outrageous stuff. Mm. And of course, you're, you're, you've got students who uh, are so important now to the whole Australian, particularly the tertiary education financial situation, yeah. uh, who, are, who are at the moment, though, forced into lines to queue up for food, etc. You, you, you must be concerned about what's happening to overseas students in terms of the way the government's treating them at the moment. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, they're, you know, essentially, you know, a lot of them have, have lost their jobs because a lot of them have been, you know, in the service sector or, um, you know, that sort of thing, really precarious jobs, you know, hospitality, all that kind of stuff. Um, and, yeah, like as you say, they, they don't get access to any sort of government benefit. Um, a lot of them can't go home because the borders are closed. Um, so that they're in this complete black hole and they're destitute. Um, so, yeah, I'm really, we're, like all of us are really concerned for them. Um, yeah, it's, it's, and it's really outrageous that, you know, basically they've been treated as cash cows for, for, for the Australian economy. It's like the third biggest sort of part of the Australian economy sort of thing. They've made, you know, billions of dollars. They've, you know, they pay taxes, all that kind of stuff. Mm. Um, and, you know, when shit hits the fan, they just, they put them on the scrap heap. So, yeah, it's wow. pretty, pretty crappy stuff. We mentioned there was a picture you may have seen in the Financial Review about a week ago of a long line of overseas students waiting at a church food handout, which was a sad mm. reflection on where it's at. Yeah. And, of course, the effects of the uh, coronavirus, um, the economic uh, deci the decisions that have been made that affect the economy have affected staff at these institutions as well. Can you tell us yeah. about what has happened there? Um, yeah. Well, I mean, I guess there's been a whole bunch of um, sort of effects, I guess. I mean, a, a big thing has been that, the, the students who get who could get out did get out, which has mm -hmm. basically meant a, a massive decline in the industry, um, and which has led to to job losses. But I think some of those job losses, you know, didn't necessarily need to happen because you know there was a move to online teaching. Um, but I think what a lot of the bosses did was they sort of saw an opportunity um, in this crisis, as you know, a lot of the bosses do. They say, well, we wanted to sort of downsize anyway. Um, we wanted to up class sizes. Um, and yeah, it's a good yeah. sort of opportunity to get rid of, you know, as they, as they pretty explicitly said, they, you know, that we are overheads so that they, but, you know, they don't basically need sort of thing. Um, yeah. So yeah, when they moved to online, they um, almost doubled class sizes at my school. Um, yeah. And that obviously necessitated a, a, a cutting of, um, of teachers' jobs as well. So yeah, that's been that's been I guess one of the biggest effects. There's been a whole bunch of other things as well. Um, like at, at one school, they they tried to cut the award wage um, by fifteen percent, um, which is yeah, which is obviously illegal. Um, <laughs> yeah, but yeah, thankfully that was actually foiled because the teachers there were unionised and we basically sort of publicly shamed them um, into stopping that happening. So yeah. So the whole. It's interesting because what, what you're saying is that it's so important to be in a union in these sort of situations, when particularly now when the bosses are trying to really crush workers even more than normal. Mm -hmm. uh, the, uh, the role of a union is so important. 
Yeah, yeah, I couldn't agree more. Um, I think if if we got into this crisis without the sort of union networks that we that we have at the moment that we were starting to build up, then I think, um, yeah, just the I guess the level of sort of destruction, <laughs> um, if you want to call it that, would have been you know much much worse. And I think you know, and I think a lot of people sort of recognise that we've seen you know like record numbers of numbers of people um, joining unions and kind of seeing that actually. Mm. Would you mind saying that again, Emma? Because we just had some connectivity issues. You're back online now, but there was, yeah. It was, we, the point was the role of the important role unions can play when bosses are trying to crush workers like this. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah. So the, the more um, organised we are going into the crisis, you know, the, the better we are, the, the, the better place we are. In terms of actually uh, being able to hold on to that we've um, that we've uh, you know fought so hard for or started to fight for, um, yeah. Because I think yeah, like I said before, the bosses see opportunity um, in the crisis, so we need to do our best to sort of um, try and stop that, um, you know, from using that from using the crisis um, as a way to um, you know crash our conditions even more. Mm. Um, Emma, it might be worth just turning your video off because it says that your bandwidth is a bit low, so I reckon we'll get better audio. Oh, sorry. Yeah. yeah. No, that's yeah. all good. Um, These are the realities of yeah. a radio show or via Zoom. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Is that better? Yeah, that's actually a lot better. Yeah. Yeah, cool. Um, and so I wanted to ask you about what it, what the actual conditions are like for staff at the moment. And and this is probably mm. true for a lot of staff, in particular teaching staff, who have now had to all of a sudden move all of their educational programs um, online. Yeah, I mean it's it's a big deal. I mean, I I've been sacked, um, so oh. it's not something that I have to deal with. Yeah. Um, but yeah, what I hear from um, my colleagues is that you know the the, the word that often comes up is shit show, um, yeah. in terms of what online teaching looks like at the moment. And there's a whole bunch of reasons for that. So um, one reason is that well, there was extremely little training given to us. We basically had I think an hour training in the online platform yeah. um, before we moved to online. Um, the platform itself is often, you know, pretty unworkable sort of thing. Um, yeah, at least at, at my school, they haven't bothered to get paid Zoom accounts. So, you know, the, the platform, yeah, yeah, the platform they use is like, from what I hear, is pretty, is pretty terrible. Um, you know, you can't do things like, you know, breakout rooms and it's really hard to get mm. students to just talk to each other and that kind of stuff. Mm. Um, and then it's just the fact that, well, it's actually just double the work because, you know, we used to, you know, prepare obviously for face-to-face. That's a very different sort of way of teaching mm. um, to online teaching. So, yeah, from what I hear from my, my colleagues is that they're doing, you know, a, a hell of a lot more work for exactly the same pay. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, not yeah. to mention the all the sort of connectivity issues, blah, 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 all that kind of stuff as well. Mm. Yeah. Mm, and the the expenses that are involved in maybe have needing a better internet or um, mm. needing um, equipment at home that you may not have. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, so yeah, that that's an issue. Um, I I think a, you know a lot of places they you know basically it's you know if you if you had a laptop if you had connectivity then you know like you had a job sort of thing. But if you had right. issues with that, then you know that was sort of that was your thing to deal with. Um, yeah. And, you know, we were sort of asking around, you know, well, who's going to pay for the internet, you know, it's, Mm -hmm. you know, hours and hours spent online sort of Mm -hmm. stuff. And they just said, oh, well, you can claim it back on tax, which is not really good enough. Which has (laughs) has been said to a lot of workers who are now working. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Emma, a practical, yeah. Yeah. I was going to say, Emma, a practical problem would be also, I imagine, just in teaching these students that they'd all be at different levels. At the, at mm. the, is that a problem in terms of teaching them? Yeah, for sure. I mean, it's always a problem, right? Um, but I think, I think, I think the problem when you go to online is that, like I said before, they um, they up the um, the student teacher ratio by a lot sometimes, and it also meant that they would put students of quite different levels in the same class, um, which is difficult enough in a face to face classroom. But you can imagine, you know, in a in a class of like online class of thirty students, and you have you know, 15 who are like beginners and 15 who are, you know, like elementary or, you know, um, above that level sort of thing, then it makes it, yeah, very, very difficult to do. Yeah, not to mention the fact that for also the students as well, a lot of the students don't have laptops. You know, they're, they're doing online teaching um, on their phones and, and that mm. sort of thing as well. So that mm-hmm. brings its own sort of, yeah, issues and problems. Yeah. Mm. It's interesting to me that um, that you've managed to have these successes in unionising in this sector, considering that it's um, so casualised. And like you mm. said, a lot of people in casual employment often think they're going to be doing it temporarily and mm. that they maybe don't need to or don't know how to actually collectively organise. Like, the, for example, the hospitality industry has, um, bosses have benefited from that mindset within that industry. What do you think are the benefits of unionising in this sector and why do you think you've managed to have more successes in this sector when others might not have as much? Yeah, that's an interesting question because I think it is it is definitely um, an, an issue to deal with in terms of casualisation. Mm. Um, but I think I think our example has proved that it's, um, it's not insurmountable. Mm. You know, there, there are a whole bunch of industries that, you know, have been casual, were casual and then became unionised um, mm. quite strongly. And I think I think the difference with all of that is that the fact that there's there's a whole bunch of teachers in there now with with an orientation to rank and file organising, um, you know, who um, who don't just accept the sort of conditions that, you know, that that we sort of put up with right now and mm. say, well, things could be better. And I think, you know, once you have you know, even just like one or two people sort of starting to say that, to raise expectations, to say things could be different, um, and then you get a positive example like the one at Kaplan, I think that actually so, sort of starts to change things um, quite yeah. significantly. Um, yeah, I don't, I, I mean, I, obviously casualization is an issue, but I don't think it's in some, in, an insurmountable one. Yeah, in the way that, you know, I think a lot of, um, you know, sort of higher up trade union officials sort of argue you know, mm. because often it's it's also an argument for passivity, I think. Mm. Um, yeah. Interesting. Mm. Kevin, did you have any other questions? Well, I was just thinking that yeah. there's there's quite a quite a move on just in schools generally. There's quite a move on at the moment by a number of people to get get schools back in Victoria into the classroom. But teachers are making the point that um, it might be okay. You say kids can't catch coronavirus off each other, but Teachers are saying, "Well, what about us? And what about us in the situation where we could be have to mix with people?" I mean, that, that seems to me to be a serious concern. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, and I, I don't believe that it's even true that you know kids can't pick it up. And I, I think the eviction rates are lower, but they can obviously be carriers and get it. And like you say, well, there's it, been some examples, in fact, of kids getting it. That's right. Yeah, and, exactly. And from each other. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So even that is a complete. Furphy, you know, I think the whole sort of argumentation around, you know, our kids have to be in school and the push to have kids in school, I think, is 
it has nothing to do with education. It's it's about the economy, right? Like it's mm. about they want to keep the schools open so that the parents can go back to school and basically reopen the economy as qu- quickly as possible. Um, and I think we have to call that out for, you know, the bullshit that it is. Um, and also the fact that, yeah, as you say, they're, they're putting teachers at risk. Yeah. And um, it's and these are huge. These are huge industries, as you mentioned um, at the start of the interview. They're they're mm. industries that that put a lot of money into the economy, and um, mm. are especially the private colleges seem to sometimes operate with a lot of impunity in terms of um, how how they treat their staff. Hell yeah, and their, and their students a lot of the time. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I mean, the the all the stories that I've heard, it feels like you know there should be like a some sort of I don't know, expose on them <laughs> um, or something yeah. like that, like a current affair kind of, I don't know, not that I like them that much, but, um, you know, like it's just, you just hear so many, so many stories, especially now sort of coming out, you know, about, you know, basically, yeah, the, the colleges just treating teachers, students in, in really sort of bar- barbarous ways. Um, yeah, and just to come back to the thing about sort of putting teachers back into face-to-face context because actually in a few schools that's still happening in Ellicott as well you know even with sort of immunocompromised teachers and that sort of thing Um, so the the attitude in those schools has been you know basically if you if you can't come and teach then you don't have a job and yeah and they and they see an opportunity in in the sense that there there are still a few students out there who want face-to-face classes um, and that sort of thing. And they, you know, they say, well, we can mop up all the students from the other colleges who've gone online. Um, so, yeah, it's this pure sort of, you know, I guess a um, opportunistic um, sort of profit motivated thing. At the expense mm. of people's safety. Absolutely. Yeah. For those who have just tuned in, you're listening to City Limits on 3CR and our guest is Emma, who's a delegate with the Independent Education Union. We're going to have to wrap up in a minute. Uh, Kevin, did you have any other questions for Emma? Well, just uh, there has been a law come in where after 12 months, I think it's 12 months, any workers who are casual can in fact can in fact apply to become permanent. Is is that the same in your industry? Can after 12 yeah. months of this casual work could people become permanent? Yeah, so that was actually that recently became incorporated into our award. Yep. Yeah. So that that yeah that has changed now. Um. But yeah, unfortunately, like it it was kind of sort of too late for for a lot of us. Um. Yeah. And actually, for for example, at my school, we were we were on on an EBA that excluded the conditions in the award. So it actually meant that it didn't apply to us. Unfortunately. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> How did they manage to get an EBA through that excluded? <laughs> Award conditions. Oh, look, mate, I don't know. Nobody, nobody remembers signing that thing. So yeah, it was probably oh. it was pretty dodgy. Oh um, my god. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I mean, the thing about twelve months has been an issue with the JobKeeper stuff as well, because um, obviously you have to have been a, a casual employee for for twelve months. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, obviously, because of the nature of the industry, sort of thing, like a lot of teachers are missing out, um, precisely because they've had to go from you know job to job. Um, yeah. Because the work has been so precarious, um, yeah. and they're therefore not eligible for that payment. Yeah, from the government. yeah. yeah, exactly. Well, you'll be pleased to hear, Emma, because we quoted it earlier in the program. John Roskam from the Institute of Public Affairs. Uh, one of the recommendations he's putting forward for getting the economy back on its feet is to exempt small business from parts of the Fair Work Act altogether. Oh, uh, that should that should <laughs> do workers. The, that that should do wonders for workers. Yeah, bet. I mean, yeah. 
Well, yeah, like change, changing the thing from seven days to 24 hours wasn't enough, was it? Exactly. <laughs> no. Yeah. Um, well, we'll have to wrap it up there. Emma, thanks for joining us. And yeah, if people you. are working in this industry who are listening to the show, how can they get involved? Yep. So, yeah, there's a there's a bunch of things. Um, a lot of the organising we do uh, is on is on Facebook. So we have a Facebook group called Organise Elicos. Mm-hmm. Um, we obviously there's the IEU. Um, so they have a website. Um, you know, IEU Vic Taz. Just just Google that. Also, if, I guess more generally, there's the um, I'm involved in a page called Workers Organising Resistance in the Pandemic. So that's WR basically on Facebook as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a few sort of um, megaphone petitions for um, supporting international students as well. Great. Thank you yeah. very much. That's Great. Thank you. Links. We'll pop them in the podcast. Okay. Thanks, Emma. Great. Thank you. Bye. Well, that's City Limits. Yes. And next week, Kevin. What what are we doing next? Next week, week is first. Well, we're up to the first is the fifth Wednesday today. So next week's the first first Wednesday of the month, and it's John McPherson and transport. Excellent. And we'll certainly look at transport. We might even try and get someone from the union next week to talk about what's happening on public transport in this situation. And yeah, we'll see how we go. But it's certainly going to look at anyway. It's our normal transport day, and we'll be there's never any shortage of things to talk about in that area. Let me tell you. Absolutely. Okay. See you next okay. week. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.